Hello, and welcome to Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we have been interviewing politicians, activists, advocates, and others since 2016 with the intention of ennobling public service, creating a platform for positive civil discourse, and facilitating dialogue with difference. This show is the antidote for those who are tired of hearing about what's going wrong with the world. We showcase people just like you who are working to leave the world better than they found it. And that's good news. And now a word from former President John F. Kennedy with his views on public service. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I'll remind you that this show is made possible by viewers like you. If you appreciate what we're doing here at Public Interest Podcast and enjoy this episode, please contribute $1 at publicinterestpodcast.com. And to express our gratitude, we offer a few freebies to our supporters. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Today's episode is brought to you by Time on the Hill. If you're interested in working on Capitol Hill, there's no better place to go than Time on the Hill as a premier resource for assisting aspiring public servants such as yourself to seek and land a job as a congressional staffer. Become a new member today and visit www.timeonthehill.com using the discount code PODCAST to take $10 off your initial first month's membership fee. Remember to use the discount code PODCAST to get a discount in finding one of thousands of positions on Capitol Hill. There are many positions up there, and you only need one. Use Time on the Hill to help you get there. We're here today with Jim Shea, Democratic candidate for governor of Maryland, former chairman and managing partner of Venable LLP, former chair of the University of System of Maryland Board of Regents, and the former chair of Empower Baltimore Management Corporation. Jim, thanks so much for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Thank you, Jordan. Excellent. So the first question I'd like to pose to you is, what are you currently doing, or what have you ever done to advance the public interest, and why? Well, I think I've devoted most of my career to the public interest, certainly Mm -hmm. through my law firm where we've done uh, enormous amounts of pro bono work. We have a foundation that has contributed uh, over my 22 years anywhere from uh, 750, now I think it's up to a million dollars a year to the Baltimore community and to the other communities that we serve. In addition, uh, I have chaired a number of civic organizations. You mentioned as we started, I think, the Empower uh, Baltimore Management Corporation. Mm -hmm. Uh, I can go into more detail in all of this, but there were other organizations that served the public interest, certainly the Board of Regents did. Uh, I was chair of the Central Maryland Transportation Alliance. which in the transportation area certainly served the public interest. Uh, And I was chair of the Downtown Partnership of Baltimore, which had specific enumerated duties, including public safety and economic development in the downtown area. So uh, as an attorney practicing at Venable, uh, you've risen through the ranks. uh, And as you said, you were quite involved in pro bono work and helping the foundation. uh, And then you became more involved in civic organizations uh, you've become a Democratic activist and, and uh, were a donor uh, fundraiser for former Governor of Maryland, Martin O'Malley. Can you speak about your evolution from your work uh, within, strictly within the law firm to joining what went through your mind when you considered joining these different civic organizations uh, and becoming more active in electoral politics? Right. Well, electoral politics came much later, just this year, mm-hmm. in, in June, in fact. Uh, but I began my career with a uh, notion that I had parallel tracks that were important to, to run. I needed to develop my professional capabilities or to help my clients. 
and at the same time help my partners and my firm. But along with that, right from the very beginning, was a sense that it was important to contribute to the community that we were in, and that's an important principle of Venable. When I became its leader, I encouraged everybody, including the very youngest lawyers, to, so, to pursue that. becoming a leader in our community and contributing to our community, clearly you've been contributing to the community in many different ways for decades. What is it that inspired uh, your transition now to becoming a candidate for the highest executive office in the state of Maryland? Well, I think now uh, I've accumulated the skills and experience that are appropriate for uh, a job like Governor of Maryland. Um, whereas earlier in my career that wouldn't have been appropriate. Uh, but um, I think the, the motivating factors here are several. First of all, I've been deeply immersed in the world of education, and I've been working with the business community uh, for a long time. I, I would like to challenge both of those communities to work together to really make Maryland's educational system world class. That's K through 12, but it's also vocational education. So that's driving me forward. Now, there were also neg what I call negative stimuli. And that would include I'm, I'm distressed at the leadership of the country in um, Washington. Uh, I am uh, disturbed that uh, our current governor is not standing up to that and fighting for Marylanders. Mm -hmm. And I'm worried, along with the other leaders here in Baltimore, about Baltimore's status. So a few things. You just mentioned uh, the current governor of Maryland, uh, Larry Hogan, a Republican, uh, not standing up to Trump. In fact, uh, on various materials, you've been quoted previously as saying you would wish he would challenge Trump on travel ban, on courts, media, immigration, and environment. I'm wondering what you view as the role of the governor of Maryland in challenging the executive of the entire United States. Okay. Well, let me add another one to that. Tax. The, the tax bill in front of the Congress today is terrible for Marylanders. Mm -hmm. Every Marylander, whether they're working class, middle class, any other Marylander is going to be hurt by this tax bill. It is important for the leader of the state to stand up and say these are bad policies. They're not only bad policies, but they're being jammed through the Congress without any hearings, without any debate, without any assessment uh, uh, of any type at all. And after literally years and years of tax policy, to jam through a significant change like this is wrong by process, and what it does to Marylanders is terrible. The leader of our state needs to stand up and make that case, mm -hmm. and it's not happening. So if you were governor right now in 2017, you would write op-eds in the local newspapers? How exactly would you stand up to the president? Right. As a candidate, I'm learning that it's difficult sometimes to get the media's attention. As governor, mm -hmm. you give him, you not being uh, Jordan Cooper, mm -hmm. but, but you being the media, gives him attention every day. Mm -hmm. He is a bully pulpit to stand up and make his case, and what we get instead is silence. So um, you also spoke, I'd like to transition back um, to some of your policy priorities as a candidate for governor. Uh, clearly many of the listeners to this podcast 
Uh, some of them are Democratic voters in the state of Maryland. And as you know, there have been many other Democratic candidates for governor who have been a guest on Public Interest Podcast. And the listeners are interested in making their decisions and distinguishing between the candidates. Mm-hmm. Now, you've identified uh, education and transit as some of your top priorities. Uh, and you've just spoken a moment ago about creating partnerships between the business community and the educational community to make uh, Maryland's public education some of the best in the nation. And you've been on the University System Board of Regents in Maryland, clearly have some education experience. Many of the voters may say, but hasn't Maryland already been doing well in education? You've been a supporter of pre- former uh, Governor Martin O'Malley, who prioritized education, kept mm-hmm. tuition from rising four years in a row. And again, uh, many of U.S. News and World Report have often ranked some of Maryland's schools among the best in the nation. So you want to make education better. How, why, and aren't we already good? The answer to the last question is no. Uh, we, we did do well under Governor O'Malley, and while I was on the Board of Regents, we kept tuition down for all the university system schools while the quality increased and improved. But under this present governor, we have chronically underfunded education, particularly K through 12 education. Uh, we have not paid sufficient attention to vocational uh, education. As a result, uh, the Kerwin Commission is finding that while we were once preeminent or said to be preeminent in K through 12, Maryland has now slipped to the second and third quartile on key test measures in fourth and eighth grade meeting, reading and math. The middle of the pack of the United States is not where you want to be because the United States K through 12 education lags badly behind the rest of the world. We, we rank well toward the bottom uh, in math and science. Is it merely a, t- a uh, question of cost and funding? No, no. Uh, in order to have a great education system, you do need sufficient funding, and some of the things that need to be done, particularly for areas of concentrated poverty, do require additional focused spending. But just spending money is not going to be the answer. We have to spend the money wisely, and uh, the Kerwin Commission is developing a blueprint, uh, and I'm familiar with the contours of it. I've read the same materials, and my education plan, which we just published a week or two ago, has those building blocks that, if done properly and funded properly, you need both, will have a world-class K-12 through education system. Now, you spoke about your education plan published just a few weeks ago. In there, you speak about early childhood education. Can you elaborate on exactly what you'd like to do first of all, with your education plan, and second, just if our listeners can bear with this two-part question, uh, in 2014, uh, Anthony Brown ran against Governor Hogan, and one of his platforms as a Democratic nominee was universal pre-K. He lost that election. Democratic voters may be wondering, you sound like a great guy, Jim, but I'm wondering, (laughs) can you really beat Larry Hogan in the general? Because if the Democrats can't beat the Republicans in the general, then does it really matter who wins the primary? So can you speak to why you're different than Anthony Brown and what your educational platform really is that will allow you not only to beat Hogan, but implement this to improve education in America? Okay, you'll forgive me. There are several parts to that question, and sure. I, I may not answer all of them. But let me begin by saying I, I certainly can beat Larry Hogan. My candidacy couldn't be more different from Anthony Brown's. Uh, there's nothing that we share in common. There are, of course, some policies that overlap, but mm-hmm. of course they would. I, I suspect even Larry Hogan's in favor of good education, so 
that's not the point. The, the question is who can deliver a great education system. And I think my resume suggests that for many years now, I've been getting things done in Maryland. I've led large organizations, both private and public, uh, and they have achieved terrific things. And I'm happy to enumerate them, but I invite others to, to do that uh, as they assess my candidacy. Um, the public education platform and program that I'm uh, proposing begins with early childhood education, but it has numerous building blocks through the entire system that generates a great K through 12 system. And experience has showed us that unless we do all of the building blocks, not a selective few, but all of them and do them well, we're going to fall short of what we need to do. Other countries outside the United States have done these things. Early childhood education is part of it. That begins with prenatal care, making sure that every uh, woman uh, has a chance for proper prenatal care. But early childhood education, uh, curricula that are benchmark against rigorous standards, uh, educators that are recruited and rewarded and promoted in the professional status that they're, they're entitled and we need them to be, uh, vocational uh, education so that our graduates of high school are either college-bound or career-ready, and funding for um, areas of concentrated poverty. And there are more. There's more in the plan. But it's a full package is the point, and not, not just a couple isolated items. I would like to speak about poverty for a moment. Uh, in Baltimore City alone, there's a 20-year life expectancy discrepancy between West Baltimore and certain parts of the more affluent areas, for instance, Guilford and Baltimore City. Um, uh, poverty uh, is present in certain parts of Maryland, and as you spoke about earlier, not only um, do they, uh, is, it, is it terrible, and, and, and perhaps you, you believe that we ought to have compassion uh, and help lift these people up, but also uh, it affects educational outcomes. So can you speak about what you plan to do to ameliorate poverty conditions for Marylanders? Right. Well, look, poverty is a product of lots of different uh, things, and they all need to be approached and attacked. We're focusing on one piece of it, a very important piece, education. Mm -hmm. and, and we know that a child who comes to kindergarten from a low-income family has a five-to-one disadvantage in vocabulary in comparison to a child who comes from a higher-income family. Think about that for a second. Those are the tools by which you learn for the rest of your career. And to start at a five-to-one disadvantage, uh, I think, speaks volumes as to the challenge you face. So early childhood intervention is important. But even after the children are into the formal first, second, third, and fourth grade, we know that they come to school hungry, that they come to school troubled, uh, that we need community schools with wraparound services, for the child, including health care, Hopkins study found that eyeglasses helped enormously poor children to read because they couldn't see well enough to see the blackboard. So some simple rudimentary things through the more complicated social support that these families need through community schools, after school programs, and summer programs. Now transitioning to the other main pillar of your gubernatorial campaign uh, is transit. You speak about the importance of economic growth and job creation if you were to become governor of Maryland, and that you would do that based upon the twin pillars of education and transit. You focus particularly on mass transit between D.C. and Baltimore and on your support for the Baltimore Red Line. Can you elaborate on 
what Maryland needs to do uh, in terms of transit uh, and how that might impact economic growth. Yeah. Well, we need, uh, and I will publish a statewide transit plan, uh, we need more mass transit and less in the way of vehicle transit um, for a number of reasons. First of all, mass transit will enable people, all people, to get to their jobs more readily and more quickly. Uh, let me just digress for a second on that point. Governor Hogan um, has ballyhooed the Baltimore Link uh, bus revisions as uh, a substantial improvement. In fact, my former organization, CMTA, has done an analysis and proves that there's not an improvement on, on time to jobs. I went to Sandtown, Winchester after the Baltimore Link program. For our listeners, Sandtown, Winchester is a neighborhood in West Baltimore. In West Baltimore. Uh, to take a bus to the Amazon warehouse in southeast Baltimore, where I would suspect there are jobs that people in Sandtown, Winchester would like to have. Mm-hmm. Two hours later, I was still not to the, to the warehouse. Mm-hmm. So connecting people to jobs is a big thing for public transit to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but secondly, in addition to that, moving commerce through this area has always what's, what is what has made Baltimore a flourishing region, from the port to the rail to now a, a terrific airport, uh, and yes, to the vehicle traffic. If you have a fully integrated transit system, commerce moves and jobs are created and the economics of the area improve substantially. All of that's a big part of my program. Right. And, uh, and you, okay, so you want to en- enhance mass transit uh, and focus less on vehicle transit. So uh, what would be some of the first steps that you would take once in office? You're sworn in, mm-hmm. the legislature's in session. What, what do you present in that first budget? Well, the first thing we need is a plan. Right now, we're running around doing improvements, and, and some uh, road improvements are needed, some bridge improvements are needed, but all of it needs to be consistent with and part of an overall plan. Otherwise, you end up building roads to nowhere and bridges that are not uh, particularly useful. Uh, we need a, a, a transit uh, plan for the full state that moves people within Baltimore, within the Washington area, between Baltimore and Washington, and includes Western Maryland and the Eastern Shore. Then when we build, we can't build a transportation system overnight. Naturally, we can't. We couldn't even if we wanted to and had all the money in the world. So it takes time. We need to build it brick by brick. And if you're building brick by brick and you don't have a plan, your bricks don't end up in the right place. So the first thing we need is a good, solid, statewide transit plan. I'll supply the initial uh, draft of it uh, during the campaign, Mm -hmm. but it'll need the Department of Transportation to put meat on those bones and to get buy-in from everybody everywhere so that when the people in the Eastern Shore, when they hear about a transit improvement in Central Maryland, they don't say, well, that's not going to help me. They're going to know it's part of an overall plan that does help them in very concrete ways. So the second thing is, after a plan, is getting full buy-in on that plan, that it does help everybody, uh, and that each part of the state has its place in the plan. So I want to transition now, Jim, to the topic of viability and motivations. Uh, many voters, again, are, listen- are trying to distinguish between a competitive field. And they'll be asking themselves, uh, well, first of all, uh, 
um, especially among the super Democrats who will be voting in the primary, the off-year gubernatorial primary, which is June 26, 2018. They'll be asking themselves, why is he only getting into electoral office now? Why didn't he run for a smaller office when he was younger? Um, why is the first thing he's going for the largest office in the state of Maryland. Do you have a response? Yes, I chose not to be a career politician. I chose not to devote my entire career to moving from one office, public office, to another, uh, engaging in, in uh, electoral politics all along. I felt that it was very important for me to learn how to do things and accomplish things, create jobs, uh, improve systems, pr improve organizations, uh, that was my training ground, uh, and that, I believe, prepares me for an executive job like governor. Uh, honestly, I think the fact that I'm not a career politician gives me a perspective that is worth uh, understanding and applying. Uh, I've seen it over again. A fresh perspective is a good idea. Now, uh, on a question of viability, um, there are other individuals who are running, some of whom are, as you have referred to, career politicians, or at least to the extent that some of those individuals have run for office multiple times and have held elected office. There are also candidates running against you who have never held elected office and, again, have a similar narrative or response to the question you just answered. How would you distinguish yourself among all the candidates in the Democratic field, and what makes your campaign particularly viable? Why should a voter listening to this episode say, you know what, I not only do I think Jim is the right guy for the job, but I also think he can win? Well, I think both are important. I think there are two issues Democrats have to answer in 2018. First, they have to nominate somebody who can get things done, who mm -hmm. can get the policies that we agree on done. And yes, there are others in the race for the nomination who are not career politicians, but I match my resume against theirs. I've spent a long time in this state leading firms, building firms, leading organizations, public and private. Uh, I have done all that work. I've got all that skill and experience built up. Uh, so whether you're talking about a career politician or uh, the other candidates, all of whom are good candidates, believe me, I have great respect for all of them. I don't think any of them have the record of getting things done that I do. Uh, as to the second question of whether I can win in the general election, I think I'm clearly the best situated to do that. I think I'm Larry Hogan's worst nightmare. I think I battle him. I have a business background that matches or exceeds his. I think I battle him on his turf. I'm going to have sufficient resources to do that, and I'm going to have the backing of the two-to-one advantage that Democrats have in the state. Right, and that's one other thing that would be interesting to bring up. Uh, in 2014, uh, what happened is Republicans turned out on similar levels for Hogan as they had for Ehrlich, who had lost the previous gubernatorial election cycle to O'Malley. Had the same number of Democrats who turned out for O'Malley turned out for Brown, Hogan would have lost the election. But of course, Democrats stayed home. What's going to motivate Democratic voters in June in particular to turn out at all? Um, and then, and second question, turn out for you. Okay. Well, let me take in reverse order. They'll turn out for me because I think I'll bring back to the party some of the moderates who drifted off. Hmm. Um, but I think much more important, we've seen how energized our Democratic base is. Just a week ago Tuesday uh, in Virginia and in Maryland, uh, Democrats turned out in droves uh, because they are upset with the national leadership and in Maryland, I think, with the state leadership. We had two Republican incumbent mayors 
who were endorsed by Governor Hogan, who lost by more than 20 points, um, Annapolis and Frederick. I think the Democratic Party is poised to bring the State House back to the people of Maryland. So, Jim, as we approach the end of this podcast episode, I'd like to ask you a final two-part question. As you can see, we're fond of multi-part questions on this podcast. That's fine. So the final two-part question is... I'd like to ask you to speak to Marylanders, all six million of them. Some of them are Republicans, some independents, some Democrats, some aren't even politically engaged whatsoever. And speak to these Marylanders about why it is that you think it's so important for you to run for office right now. So your motivations for running, and then what you hope your legacy will be uh, after a lifetime of public service. Right. Well, the time is now for all of us, every single person in Maryland, to stand up and do what they can. Uh, It is time for me to stand up and do what I can by running for office. I can improve the public education system. I can make it world-class. I can set the stage for a world-class transportation system. And all of that will lead to what we need most of all, the creation of jobs. Uh, I haven't met anybody in the state of Maryland, I've traveled all across the state and will continue to do so, who doesn't want a good job for a fair wage. I can produce that. Uh, I've done it before. The uh, Empowerment Zones, the Downtown Partnership, the Board of Regents were all involved in job creation. I created jobs in building my own firm. We grew it by a thousand percent and we created many, many jobs in the process. So Marylanders want jobs. Uh, Democrats are ready to return the state house to the people, uh, to a, a administration that is ready to invest in them, their jobs, and their future. And I'm that person. That has been Jim Shea, Democratic candidate for governor of Maryland, former chairman and managing partner of Venable LLP. Uh, former chair of the University System of Maryland Board of Regents and chair of Empower Baltimore Management Group, who speaks about a strategy of investment, investment in the economy of of Maryland and investment in the people of Maryland. He points to a record of doing things, getting things done and creating jobs, speaking of how he had a thousand percent job growth at Venable LLP. He's an executive who has held executive roles and states that that qualifies him to hold the highest executive office in Maryland. He speaks of a record of accomplishment uh, with his business background that presents, as he says, a viable campaign that would be uh, current Republican Governor Hogan's worst nightmare. He is interested in bringing the business community into the education and transportation spheres uh, in order to improve long-term economic growth. And ultimately, Jim makes the case for his uh, for his uh, gubernatorial ca- candidateship that he is in support of good jobs for fair wages and that him, more than any other Democrat, is well poised not only to beat Hogan but to create a stronger economy with more jobs for all Marylanders. Jim, I'd like to thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Jordan. Today's show is brought to you by GoDaddy, where you can buy your own website domain name or build your own website. Now, I've used GoDaddy myself before for various endeavors and found it useful in building my own website. If you'd like to save 30% off the cost of building your own website, go to trygodaddy.com slash public interest. Again, that's trygodaddy.com slash public interest to save 30% off the cost of buying your own domain name and building your own website at GoDaddy. Enjoy. 
This has been another episode of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. I'll remind you to subscribe on publicinterestpodcast.com, iTunes, or your favorite podcast listening platform. And please join the conversation by calling 240-630-0380 or emailing engage at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.